Hello, friends. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I am excited to have a special guest with me today, a gentleman who uh, I've known for a little while here and who I've been following for quite some time. His name is Dr. Luigi Bocuto, and he's a research scientist at the Greenwood Genetic Center in South Carolina. So, uh, Dr. Bocuto, it's so nice to have you um, with me today to talk about a couple of different subjects and share with my audience. I know they're going to be very interested in uh, hearing what you have to say. And it's good to see you again. I, we met, actually, it's funny, we met on my birthday in June in New York City. Uh, you happened to be in New York for a conference, and I was there to take off for London the next day. So it's good to see you again. Uh, good to see you too. And thank you for uh, this invitation, this opportunity. It's, uh, it's nice, very nice to be here. If I have a chance to to talk a little bit with you. Well, thank you, thank you. Yeah, it's uh, you've been doing a lot of really interesting work. I'm on YouTube a lot, watching videos. I love the TED Talk, the uh, personalized medicine, beautiful. That's nice, and a lot of other videos I've seen too. And uh, one of the things that I wanted to talk with you about today, and you and I kind of talked a little bit off camera first, is. Um, there's a community out there that I think is stereotyped, um, and that would be, for lack of better ways to say this, uh, I don't know if I'm politically correct or not, but let's say people with autism, and the the um, how people view autism, what they think of it, how they define it in their minds, and having known many people with autism and actually working with some as clients uh, in the fitness industry. I find that you, you have a phrase, I'm going to steal it from you because it's actually something Michael J. Fox says, because I work a lot with people with Parkinson's. He said, if you met a person with Parkinson's, you met a person with Parkinson's. And your, your spin on that is, what if you can share that with us? Sure, sure. It's, it's, I don't owe any rights on uh, on that on that sentence, so <laughs> no problem with that. But uh, uh, really, uh, that can be ad adapted to the world of autism, uh, and, uh, and uh, the thing is the same. If you see a patient with autism or a person with autism, you've seen one person with autism, and uh, that is really the the paradigm of uh, the diversity that characterizes this uh, uh, this group of individuals. Uh, and in fact, uh, nowadays, uh, the most recent definition uh, only um, expresses that the diagnosis, the definition of diagnosis as a spectrum. There is only one entity called the autism spectrum disorder uh, that encompasses a, a, a huge variety of, uh, um, of uh, behavioral issues. So, the common trait for the condition uh, is uh, a cluster of three core symptoms. Uh, there are impairments at the social level, uh, there are problems in verbal and nonverbal communication, uh, and uh, there are uh, a series of uh, um, stereotyped uh, and limited interests. And uh, of course, the, the, the degrees of uh, severity that uh, could characterize these three core symptoms may vary uh, tremendously, uh, as well as they may vary the, the correlate uh, comorbidities. So there are patients with autism that tend with uh, other medical conditions, 
there are patients with autism that have only uh, slight behavioral issues. So um, we are talking about uh, a, a large uh, group of individuals that might have several types of problems. And as you said, we are encountering now at the social level some sort of stereotype that uh, uh, a person with uh, autism sometimes receives some social uh, stigma. And uh, when in fact, uh, there are people with autism that are quite functional, they're quite capable of um, interacting uh, in, in a social environment, uh, although with some limitation, but uh, they are autonomous, they are able to take care of themselves. And uh, I think that uh, in order to provide a, a better, more personalized approach and, and management to this individual, it's very important to characterize their, um, their condition, their phenotype, both at the molecular level and the clinical level. Okay, interesting. Um, I know that, um, well, we're, we're humans. Every human is different, right? Every person with Parkinson's uniquely affected differently. Um, I've known people diagnosed with autism who are non-verbal, need a lot of uh, help and assistance and caring for themselves. To the other end, whereas they're highly, uh, they socialize well, um, um, function very, like you say, autonomous. They can take care of themselves pretty well, if not completely. Um, yes. So it, I have a question for you. So I'm just going to take a turn here and go down uh, a path. One thing I've noticed, and I'm curious about this, do you find that there is a common thread of let's say any type of sensory variance with them as uh, compared to let's say you or me um and what i mean by that is let's yeah. say sense yes. uh I, I can give you an example i could say to one of my uh, people i work with drop and give me 50 push-ups okay and then i could say after 10 20 30 do you feel the burn and the answer is i don't know so what I always wondered about that is what's going on there? Because I want to be able to work with this person and make sure I'm not going to hurt them or injure them, but I want to challenge them. And I've, I've wondered if it had anything to do with uh, uh, the, the nervous system or messages to the brain or, or interpreting the feeling of a burn, if you know what I mean. Yes. So um, there are of uh, uh, um, we call them uh, uh, one level is perception so there is uh, an abnormal uh, threshold uh, in their uh, sensory system and another level is the uh, processing the elaboration of uh, the sensorial stimulation and the um, output signal so that the message that they are elaborating uh to uh, explain what they feel uh, so okay. if we can okay. start from the from the first um a lot of uh, a lot of people with uh, actually have abnormal sensorial responses uh, what does that mean basically what is for us a, a regular stimulation from the outside world it could be a visual stimulation uh, or a, a sound simulation uh, or tactile stimulation uh, 
uh, we perceive that, we elaborate, and we process that, and we acquire the information. For some people with autism, uh, that same input, that same amount of uh, stimulation is perceived as disturbing. It's something that hits the threshold of uh, discomfort. In fact, there are some, uh, um, theaters, some movie theaters that are autism friendly. So oh. they uh, have some uh, devices that how to, to watch the movies, but with buffered sounds, with uh, uh, dimmed lights. So basically, um, a kid with autism that wants to see a superhero movie uh, would be uh, in uh, a lot of discomfort, almost close to the pain threshold uh, when exposed to um, big uh, um, explosions, you know, uh, very violent uh, sounds, very, uh, you know, flashy lights. Uh, it will be something that will uh, uh, create uh, uh, some discomfort at the physical and that is because in many individuals, uh, the sensorial system uh, is uh, set uh, on parameters that are slightly different from the parameters that you and I have. Okay. It might be related to the fact that I have some uh, inflammation going on, so the, the level of response in their neuron uh, is set up a little higher or lower, depending how, how we look at that. So that is the first thing, the fact that they process input of the sensory information in a different way that we do okay. and then there is the output the output is more related to their communication issues so when you ask do you feel the burn uh, has this person ever been exposed to what you call burn do you know if he has been trained to learn what are his physical limits or when he was young he did play some sort of sports up to uh, an agonistic level so do, do you know if person has ever felt what you consider burn in his life do okay. yeah do not work with the same conventions that we do and uh, in some cases you know when when you ask a person with autism do you feel the burn he's going to look for fire yeah they, they are very literal yeah, that's, yes, I've noticed it's, this. Yes. But they do have this sort of interpretation. And uh, the typical example that I like to cite is uh, um, a character from uh, a, a TV series, you know, uh, Sheldon Cooper from The Big Bang Theory. Uh, Sheldon uh, is uh, a, an example of uh, a patient with mild autism, but very high functioning. What... Uh, one time could have been diagnosed as uh, Asperger syndrome. And uh, a typical example of that is that Sheldon doesn't get sarcasm. So if okay. you say something, but really hinting to something else, he will rely to what, to what is coming out of your mouth. Yes. So it, there are some episodes when, you know, his friend has to show up a, a sign and say sarcasm. Like, you know, consider okay. Okay. he okay. doesn't have, you know, in the processing. I'm just saying this because I'm sure that that person, you know. Yeah. Um, just saying this because I'm sure that that person, you know, is, is fully functional, think that they are on fire, literally. Yes, you know, so that's really interesting. That's really interesting. We've talked, uh, a couple of people I've worked with, I've no, well, I've noticed for sure, uh, sometimes joking around, 
doesn't work too well unless you explain that it's joke because in sarcasm yes that could be part of the joking too yeah very very literal uh which i find very interesting too um i this is a kind of a a side note here there was a point at one one point where uh, one of my uh, friends uh, who i work with he was telling me things that he was doing I just didn't believe, I couldn't believe he was actually doing the things he said he was, Some just some uh, personal things. And then I talked with his, uh, his mother, and she said, well, he really doesn't have the capability of lying. So he wouldn't lie to you about anything because he just doesn't think along those lines. And I actually had never thought about that. I don't know if this makes sense at all, but then it, it made me realize, okay, wait a minute. Yes, yes. He, he doesn't even... There's no logic behind lying, and that's that's what he would tell me. So there's, there's absolutely why would you do this? There's no reason to. Yes, yes, yeah. It one one next step in the evolution of a notion of a of a concept that they lack. So uh, they do not see uh, a practical advantage in lying, uh, and uh, they value the. Uh, this, the original structure of the concept uh, because it's true yes. and uh, there is you know another thing that uh, um, sometimes is uh, is not considered well enough is that individuals with autism don't work well when they do not have all the information so if you change a concept or a notion you know and you alter the reality uh, by telling right. a lie you set off their parameters yes things don't match anymore mm -hmm. so that's another thing you know they tend to stick to the truth because it makes sense mm -hmm. that, that totally makes sense and, and when i talk about this too it's not like they were big lies i thought they were just little things that maybe you know didn't want to admit or whatever no it was just I really learned a lot. I've learned a lot from uh, one person in particular who I work with, who's a very dear friend now. And uh, we have, I've also learned more from him than just about anybody also, because perception, uh, perspectives, especially when it comes to certain political things and, and other things, um, let's say um, disability rights, things like that, um, discrimination. I have learned so much my world has expanded tremendously because I could not possibly have thought along those parameters. Like it, unless somebody taught me how, and this person has. It's been very interesting. I, I really enjoy it. There, there was one more thing to discuss about the uh, exercise therapy. Uh, you know, to mention that. Um, when we talked about sensorial dysfunction, uh, sometimes we forget an important uh, organ of sense, which is uh, the skin, you know, the tactile sense. Sure. And a lot of patients with autism uh, suffer with the function at that level too. So how can you um, make an example of that? Well, for example, they do not tolerate tight clothes. They like to wear a very loose clothes because having a, you know something that is consistently uh, operating some pressure or some friction on their skin makes them really uncomfortable mm -hmm. this is because 
once again, their threshold of tolerance is uh, uh, set off compared to us. So if we sometimes can enjoy, you know, uh, some, you know, tight pants or a, a button down shirt that is, you know, right feet and, and so on, they would go crazy with that. Sure. Because the, the feeling of that clothes pushing on their skin constantly is perceived as discomfort, almost as pain. Yeah. So on the side, we have a lot of individuals with autism that suffer uh, of uh, um, motor disorders, sometimes gross motor disorders or fine motor disorders. And they would benefit from physical therapy, from intervention. It's something that has been proved actually that has one of the best efficacy rates if it has initiated very early. On oh. the other hand, however, we have to consider that in these type of patients, the, level, the type of intervention has to be personalized. So yeah, yeah. to give you an example, the type of manipulation that you can do to fix some uh, uh, joint stiffness cannot be the same in a patient with autism because maybe that patient has some tactile hypersensitivity. Yes. So he doesn't want push on his knee, on his shoulder, or something like that, even if he's what is not good. Yeah, thank you for saying that too. And I, I'm, uh, one of the things I, I'm so glad about is we're able to talk about this because the, I have a pretty large audience of personal trainers who watch this, this uh, series on YouTube and um, physical therapists all over the world. And it's very, very helpful to know these things. I certainly have run into, um, just about everything you're talking about with my own clientele, except I have learned a lot today about, about what's going on and some of the reasons for different things. Um, but I've noticed too that the tactile thing, even where, where sometimes you may want to cue somebody, maybe it's a, a tap on the shoulder just to have them stand up straighter, that may not be cool. I mean, always, I always ask first anyways, no matter who it is. Can I touch your shoulder? No. Or yes. I, I, I know if I can't, with certain people, and I noticed that that uh, touching, touching is is a, uh, it can be very, almost frightening, um, for certain people with autism. Yes. So you can't. You have to be very careful not to cross the boundaries there of uh, causing discomfort. And of course, with yes. the manual manipulation too, like you're saying, every person's different. So you have to personalizing. Oh, I couldn't agree more. That's that's brilliant. It's so necessary and important to personalize. Yes. Yeah. And, and again, there are levels that are related to social interaction. You know, they have their own word and they don't let anybody get too close to, to touch them. You know, it, it's destabilizing for them. And there is uh, the discomfort related to the sensorial impairment. Yes. Yeah, really interesting. Um, I'd like to ask another question too. Um, this I learned from a parent of somebody I've worked with. Um, had something to, to do, if I remember what she said correctly, about during early years of life, uh, midline of the brain, something going on there where there were connections that were not formed. Is, is that, am I on track with something there? <clears throat> so, abnormalities in the have been described in many patients with autism. 
And once again, there is a diversity of abnormalities that have been described in the literature. There are some areas that are at the uh, base of the brain that seem to be uh, more commonly affected. Um, for example, the uh, hippocampus is uh, one area that is uh, supposed to be involved in the um, regulation of uh, instincts, very basic emotions, and, uh, and, and abnormalities at the neuroanatomical level in, uh, in that area uh, have been reported uh, in a large number of patients. Uh, once again, there are patients that show no abnormalities whatsoever. And there are patients that show abnormalities in other areas of the brain. For example, uh, the cerebellum that uh, is uh, involved in motor. So that explains uh, why some patients, like we said before, do have some coordination impairment um, that, that goes with their behavior. And, but cerebellum has also been involved in uh, the so-called uh, uh, process of emotional learning. So having, uh, are you there? Okay. Yes, yes, sir. Having yeah. uh, um, in, that, in that area might actually lead not only to motor impairment, but also to impairment in uh, neurobehavior. Okay, okay. Yeah, really interesting. Um, I've, I've noticed other things too, like coordination, balance, hand-eye coordination a lot of times is uh, uh, not the same. Maybe difficult to, you know, play baseball, for example, a wiffle ball and a bat and do some hand-eye or just anything. So um, yep. for the personal trainers who are, who are out there watching, I, my recommendation is, uh, as I always say with everybody, learn your learn your client, learn your patient, and work towards their needs based on who they are and w what you can do with them. Where you're you're going to be, they're going to be comfortable. Yet you can still be ho hopefully effective because crossing boundaries into discomfort, uh, whether it's tactile, emotional, anything like that, we have to stay away from that. So it, it can be a learning curve. You know, it's a learning curve as to uh, each person and what we do. But over time, we can we can help. We can help. So uh, with their fitness, let's say, or their uh, physical therapy needs. Yeah, I think that that, that point, one of the most uh, important, maybe might require a little extra time at the beginning, but it will pay off on the long term, is to have the patient getting comfortable getting adjustment with the environment where the, mm -hmm. the, the therapy occurs because it's already a, a big adjustment almost a shock to take an individual with autism and introduce them in a new environment then to expect that that individual will operate will perform at his best in a new environment it's asking a little too much so maybe that that requires a little bit of patience a little bit of uh, a different approach to allow the, the individual to get familiar with the environment, to spend some time um, touching things around, uh, experiencing uh, the differences, sizing up his new space. And once he processes that new space, then he can operate, he can have his body operating properly or as proper as possible you know because you do have some impairment but he can have his body operating properly in the new environment 
otherwise he will have already a, a limitation that comes from the novelty of the environment. Sure, sure, yeah, and I've noticed um, anxiety can be a, 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 a very present, and so like anybody, like with anybody, we want to create a, a relationship based on actual, sincere, genuine caring. Because we, we, I care. I want to help them, but that also involves understanding them, learning them for every person. And uh, you know, everyone's going to go at their own pace. Some people are ready to rock and roll in the first two minutes. And sometimes I, I know I've actually just, on occasion, I'll just have just a conversation for a visit or two before we do anything. Because comfort is so important, trust is so important, respect, you have to respect this. So yeah, this uh, your information is so helpful. I know that the trainers, physios out there watching, I'm sure that they're learning a lot because, um, you know, I travel all over the world. I don't meet a lot of people who work with the uh, autistic community in this capacity as a trainer or physio. So you appreciate very much everything that you're sharing with us. Oh, my pleasure. Now, if, if you don't mind, uh, just for just a, a few minutes, just a short few minutes, there's actually another topic I had on my mind is completely different. Um, but first, if there's anything more you wish to share about the previous topic, just let me know. Um, if you have any words of wisdom there, uh, that you didn't say that you'd like to share, go for it. But I do want to talk about the alcohol and liver thing that we talked about yesterday texting. <laughs> Again, it's another experience of the diversity of interaction of what we are made of, you know, our genes and and the environment. And I think that we're learning a, a lot more now that we have uh, tools for a uh, uh, large um, uh, scientific analysis, like uh, analyzing the whole genome or uh, the whole proteome, the, the, you know, the, the totality of, of the, the proteins or the, the metabolic pathways. Uh, we're learning more about uh, how uh, little things in itself can predispose interact in different ways with the environment and uh, when it comes to liver one of the most critical environmental factors is alcohol mm -hmm. alcohol could be um, you know could have some positive effect in our body uh, if taken with moderation uh, unfortunately especially in some individuals with genetic predisposition uh, the assumption of alcohol uh, can lead to very deleterious consequences. But knowing that in advance is actually uh, extremely important because mm -hmm. we cannot change yet how we are made. You know, we cannot, there are now some uh, uh, technologies that allow uh, what is called genome editing. So correcting some mistakes in our code of life but they are not as developed yet to, to be available on, on a large scale. However, until we will be able to change our genome, we can change the environment on us. So we can uh, limit the assumption or, or eliminate the assumption of mm -hmm. alcohol in order to prevent 
the deleterious impact of the environmental factor. And uh, uh, for example, um, I've been lucky enough to collaborate with uh, uh, some colleagues and friends uh, in the uh, United States and in Italy. Uh, we worked on the effect of uh, certain uh, gene variants on uh, uh, different types of liver disease. There is uh, um, alcoholic and non-alcoholic liver disease, and uh, there are um, gene variants that predispose either to the first one or the second one. But there is also uh, one gene variant, and it's the only one so far, that has been associated to both, both alcoholic and non-alcoholic liver disease. So, it's, it's interesting to uh, learn how, how the dynamic of the interaction between the genome and environment actually determines our health. And uh, um, for example, the, the clinical consequences of this is that if two people that uh, are exposed to the same environment, so the same diet, same amount of alcohol, and other uh, environmental factors such as uh, uh, cigarette smoke and so on. If one of these person carries that variant, it has a much higher risk of developing uh, fat liver or steatosis, and uh, to have that progressing to steatohepatitis, wow. to uh, chronic hepatitis and uh, cirrhosis. So, you know, it's uh, uh, like when when we talk you know, and uh, with, with colleagues and friends say, well, you know, I eat exactly the same as my wife, you know, but uh, I gain weight, she doesn't, you know, it must be in my genes. This, this is a, a simplified, you know, interpretation, but there is some truth. Uh, there are clearly some uh, uh, predisposing factors in our metabolism that allow us to um, metabolize better or worse certain nutrients. And uh, when it comes to alcohol, well, unfortunately, alcohol can be deleterious at multiple levels in the liver. Uh, we talked about this variant that affect the accumulation of fat uh, yes. in the hepatocyte, the liver cells. Other variants may play a role in the uh, inflammatory status. So they might actually trigger inflammation in the liver or at systemic level, uh, in the presence of certain uh, environmental factors. Okay. So there's some information I've, I've been uh, researching for a while. Some I learned from our mutual friend, um, Dr. Alfonso Fasano, and then uh, other people and uh, you know, research, some of the medical research out there. For example, if you take identical twins, who uh, there's a study, and I, uh, there's this one study of 100 identical twins where one has Parkinson's and one doesn't. And in this one particular study, 97, I believe, of the twins who had Parkinson's had long-term exposure to some toxin or some, they were in an environment that the other one was not exposed to. And therefore, the, the research, is, is they're looking at it as like a genetic predisposition combined with exposure can, I, I don't know the correct medical terminology, but turn the gene on or cause it to mutate and start uh, cause a disease. So I imagine that with alcohol, for example, it, would that be similar? Yes. Seems like that's, that's kind of what you were saying here a little bit ago is, is we're looking at a similar type of thing. Exactly. So this is what is part of the so-called epigenetic regulation. Ah. The epigenetic 
is everything that uh, uh, still affects the function of the gene, the level of expression and interaction, but it does not affect the sequence. Yep. Okay. That's why it's genetic. So it doesn't change the sequence, but it does change the modulation of the activity of the gene. Oh, wow. Uh, so what uh, I mentioned before is one step back, which is the genetic regulation. So those are variants <clears throat> that we have uh, congenitally. So we are born with that and they will not change. So it's important that we can take that into account when we modulate the environment around us because okay. we can change. We can change the level of alcohol that we assume. We can change the type of drugs that we, we take, but we cannot change our DNA yet, at least. Okay. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Um, I'm just actually trying to think of what else would I ask you about this? Because I find it to be fascinating that, uh, you know, we're learning all this information about genetics, um, genes, just all the stuff that you look at, uh, that you're researching at the genetic center there. I just think it's fascinating. Um, so do you have, let me ask you this, for people who uh, uh, consume alcohol, do you have any recommendations for them in any way, shape, or form? Just any words of wisdom you'd like to share about any precautions they should take? Well, uh, first of all, uh, knowing a little bit of their family history. If they have family members that have suffered of alcohol-related disorders, there might be a genetic predisposition running in the family uh, to um, uh, generate, to suffer of this sort of disease. So okay. that has to be taken into account. Second, uh, of course, um, excessive assumption of alcohol is never too good. So uh, there are people that have a chronic problem and that has to be uh, managed in the proper terms. So to go and see, um, maybe, you know, to, to seek for assistance for that. Mm -hmm. uh, but in general, the, the golden rule is that uh, really uh, our diet is uh, our uh, first line of defense of our health. Uh, sure. by, by regular diet and the proper amount of exercise, uh, we can really take good care of our body. Uh, the amount of information that we're gathering nowadays with these new technologies, with these new um, instruments that uh, uh, science is providing us, uh, is actually adding even more value to this statement. Because we do know now that uh, what we assume, what we introduce uh, into our body has uh, some effect not only in terms of providing energy source or source of uh, hydration of uh, uh, minerals, but also to regulate, like I mentioned, the function of certain metabolic pathways to regulate the activity of certain genes. So it has some short and long-term effect, and uh, we need to take that into account. We need to know that we're responsible for the way we treat our own body. True. So uh, having a regular diet, you know, a good uh, um, food hygiene uh, or life hygiene, you know, when you introduce uh, exercise uh, is critical not only to 
feel good at the moment, but also to preserve our health on the long term. Yeah, absolutely. And we see also with people, and I, I'm one of these people, it's very, well, as to say, it's not uncommon for me to wake up and just feel sad. I have no reason to be. My life is very good. I'm surrounded by great people, family. Um, although it is really doom and uh, gloomy here and rainy and snowing and dark. <laughs> but I, I, I know this. If I just get started moving, and I teach us at workshops all over the world, just started, like nature's antidepressant for me is exercise. It might just be a get out the door and just walk fast or run or something, go to the gym. And I, I feel better. And then I'm not sad for the rest of the day. It happens every time. So I just get started. Because otherwise, in the days when I didn't used to get started and I weighed a lot more, I was very big. I had some health problems that were not good. So it's, it's, it's an interesting thing how all of our, our systems are connected, our, our body with our, our emotions and our psychological state, our mental, our cognitive ability. It's fascinating. Yes, and uh, exercise has uh, positive impacts on, on many levels, you know, on the cardiocirculatory level, on the immune level, uh, you know, it strengthens our immune uh, defenses. And, uh, uh, and like you said, on the, on the mood and behavior. Yeah. So personalized approach. There are people that uh, might need to run, uh, you know, 5K every morning. There are people that take that into jogging. But uh, uh, it depends, you know, you need to find your own dimension and you need to stick with that. Yeah, exactly. And to find what works for us. Well, I, I appreciate this uh, second topic too about the alcohol, the liver, and, um, you know, the whole genetic thing. It's, it's so important. And we could go down the other another rabbit hole here which i won't because i don't know enough to talk about it but even when we talk about dietary things uh no matter what it is liquids or solids things we can put in our body that cause inflammation that then cause other other problems you know um i was just reading this book here uh uh dale bredesen a neurologist from uh i'll just show it here the end of Alzheimer's. Dr. Dale Bredesen and I actually oh. met him last year and we had lunch and he talks about Alzheimer's and Parkinson's living here for 10 to 20 years yeah. before it gets here. And it's like, whoa, who knew? I didn't know that till I met him. In, in fact, there is a, a further connection nowadays. And that is the so-called uh, microbiota. All the uh, organisms, all the bacteria that live uh, uh, in our body, mainly in our intestine, uh, may actually play a role uh, in uh, some uh, uh, neurodevelopmental disorders um, or in some um, neurodegenerative disorders like Parkinson or Alzheimer's. Because they, um, a lot of nutrients are filtered through these bacteria, and like in our intestinal flora, and uh, the type of bacterial strains that are present in our organism determine the levels of availability of certain compounds, but also determine the 
presence in, uh, in our body of certain byproducts that might be uh, more or less toxic. So uh, there is a, a lot going on that we're learning nowadays. Yeah. And uh, once again, once again it's, it's making us appreciate even more the impact of our, our diet and our lifestyle. I'd say it's incredible. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I wouldn't have thought of that in this particular conversation, but um, a person that Alfonso Fasano works with, his name is Tony Lang. Do you know Tony Lang, neurologist? No, honestly. He's also, I've met Tony when I was there last year visiting Alfonso, and um, I was just watching a video he put out of a, a speech, a, a presentation. He talks about the liver and Parkinson's. and I didn't even know there's dopamine can be produced by the liver um, in addition to other places. But all this stuff, what you're sharing here and, and, and all these things are so fascinating. It really gets me thinking more and more and more about people I work with, myself, what I'm putting in my body. Cause I'm 57 and I want to live another 57 years functionally. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be sick. I just don't want to be sick. <laughs> Understandable. Yeah, and draining the system. You know, I mean, there's time and place for everything, but I don't want to be burdening people, so I need to take responsibility. So that's what my my goal. Well, this is very very interesting. Uh, anything more that you want to say about any of that before we uh, before we close out? No, I think we covered a lot. Uh, but uh, as I said before, if you receive some feedback or some questions. Um, I'm available for some follow-up. So, oh, beautiful. Okay, yeah, yeah. If if I get questions, I'll definitely um, uh, find a way for whatever you're uh, best with communicating with people, and we'll we'll connect you with them. But um, Luigi, it's been great, man. It's really good to see you again. I hope to see you, uh, you in person again sometime soon. Eventually, my son is in Atlanta right now doing his residency residency so he'll be there at least two and a half more years so one of those times i go to see him i'm going to drive over and see you because it's really not that far sounds good um so if you'll stay on with me but i'm just going to close out here and uh, thank you again for sharing with us really really appreciate your time and your your knowledge and the willingness to share personal trainers physiotherapists anybody else watching um I, it's been really interesting for me, and as I talk about in, in, uh, at the end of every interview, you know, seek to grow and expand your knowledge base and your skill set so you can be better for the people who you want to be working with. And also know that there are many different demographics and many populations you can work with and you can be effective, you know, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, MSA, autism, all kinds of things. Um, but but it's the whole personalized well medicine or physical therapy is so important for people and thanks to luigi we learned a lot more about that today so seek to grow expand your skill set thank you luigi thank you everybody for watching and um have a fantastic day